1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. William A. Darity Jr. and Kristen Mullen, the editors of the Black Reparations Project, a handbook for racial justice. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you.
0: Yeah, we're doing fine.
1: Thank you. Thank you for being on the program. I'd like for us to start with a definition of reparation. What
0: does it mean? Uh, in our work, we've argued that uh, a, a suitable definition for reparations is a, um, a process of acknowledgement, redress and closure for a grievous injustice. By acknowledgement, we mean that the culpable party the party that's responsible for the atrocities acknowledges or admits that they have take have that they are taking responsibility for having committed uh committed the harms and that they are also going to take responsibility for engaging in an act of restitution for the harms so that act of restitution is is redress Uh, It's an it's an act of compensation that is 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 undertaken on the part of the the culpable group, and uh, they undertake that action to provide some form of compensation to the community that has been subjected to victimization. So that's the second component redress. The third component is closure which is the coming to terms between the culpable party and the victimized community uh, coming to an agreement that the bill has been paid or that the account is settled. Uh, and this is contingent on the satisfactory execution of the program of redress. Um, and closure is something that can be maintained as long as there are no new atrocities or no renewal of the older atrocities. So that's the way in which we think about reparations, acknowledgement, redress, and closure, which comes under the acronym of ARC ARC.
1: Thank you. Mrs. Miss Mullen, would you like to say anything about that? Um no, that's absolutely the way that we defined
2: uh reparations. And it's sort of convenient that we have that acronym, ARC. Uh, acknowledgement, redress, and closure. I think for many people, the the, the seed of arc, the closure, is the um, the point that they have some difficulty with. But um, you know, as as Sandy said, you know, we're we're you know, closure would only be possible if there were no new atrocities uh, committed against the community of eligibility. Uh, and no renewal of any of the old, the previous atrocities.
1: In your book, you talk about uh, the impact of intergenerational effects of slavery. Can you explain to the audience how that plays a role with reparations?
0: Well, from our perspective, uh, there would have been no significant long-term effects of slavery had reparations been provided to the direct victims of slavery upon emancipation at the end of the Civil War. Uh, There was a promise that was made to the formerly enslaved of 40-acre land grants as restitution for their years of bondage. But that was a promise that was not kept. And from our perspective, that created the basis for the current or contemporary difference in wealth between white and black Americans, uh, a difference that was aggravated by subsequent policies that were pursued by the the federal government. Uh, But uh, the long term effects of slavery are a consequence in large measure of the failure to actually provide any restitution for slavery itself. and uh, Kirsten probably can provide some additional insight about what did occur with respect to land redistribution at the end of the Civil War, um, which was a, a, a policy that was not not pursued on behalf of the freedmen. Right, uh,
2: you know, what saying what is referring to is the Homestead Act. This was the 1862 legislation that provided not 40 acre land grants, which was what was promised but denied the uh, newly emancipated population, but 160 acre land grants in the Western part of the the country. Uh, This was the land that had just, you know, immediately been occupied by indigenous people. Uh, So therefore, you know, the Homestead Act uh, enabled the completion of the nation's colonial settler project. So this is, uh, you know, a governmental Uh, policy that enabled 1.5 million white households, uh, including new immigrants from Europe, to basically get a a free uh, government handout of 160 acre um, land grants. And, um, you know, this is a promise that was kept by the federal government. And we know that today, that 1.5 million households that received those land grants as a consequence of the 1862 Homestead Act, that 42 million living white Americans are receiving a benefit from that single governmental policy. Um, So you're talking about a situation where the federal government actively uh, assisted white Americans with accumulation of wealth, while equally actively, equally actively um deaccumulated wealth for black Americans. So when we talk about intergenerational wealth, we're talking about um, intergenerational wealth that white Americans were enabled uh, you know, to, uh, to acquire uh, with the assistance of the federal government. But it was you know intergenerations of You know, uh, white racism, white supremacy, that made it difficult and continues to make it difficult for white for Black Americans to acquire wealth in this country. Um, But this is what was happening in the uh, the 1800s. When you move up to the next century, the federal government uh, continued to assist white Americans with wealth accumulation with the GI Bill, Um, and this is legislation that could have been equally applied uh to blacks and white veterans but it was not uh, and you know black veterans very rarely had an opportunity to benefit from this uh, this legislation essentially the federal government was making it possible for returning veterans to uh to purchase a home or a business or a farm. Uh, there was also an education uh, benefit. Um, and you know what we and others, especially uh, sociologist Ira Katznelson Katz Nelson has found is that on those rare occasions that black American veterans were able to benefit from the GI bill, they got the education benefit, but not an opportunity to, you know to, to break into uh, that middle class level with the purchase of a home. Uh, when you add to that, um, the incredible um um you know, problems with redlining in this country, uh where um you know the properties of black Americans uh you know that were say equal in quality to those of white Americans were valued less. Um and it was difficult for them to get um uh mortgage insurance on their homes um but again you have a situation where the federal government is working in in this case um in collusion with the financial institutions in you know different communities to make sure that black americans did not have access to that benefit so you know the the whole phenomenon of redlining coupled with the interstate highway system which uh in uh, major cities almost always managed to gut the black business community. So again, another situation where, you know, the the wealth that black people were able to, um, to acquire was decimated by uh, the highway system, which the federal government was behind. So yes, you know, there definitely have been some very different kinds of support that black and white Americans have received from the federal government, um, you know, at least since the end of the civil war.
1: Now, tell me, what is wrong with the idea that many say that ending the Civil War was a form of reparations?
0: Well, in general, the notion that stopping a harm is an act of compensation is a huge mistake. Stopping a harm is not the same thing as providing compensation for the effects of the harm. So uh, ending slavery is not the equivalent of compensating for the effects of slavery. And so uh, that's a key distinction. And I think that uh, frequently people confuse the notion of of stopping a harmful act or policy with the question of providing restitution for the effects of that harmful act or policy. Uh, But the ending of the Civil War is an even more complicated issue uh, because it is not an act that was taken unilaterally by white Americans on behalf of black Americans. In fact, from the standpoint of the Union forces, uh, there were uh, upwards of 150,000 black soldiers who contributed to the Union effort and in the process uh, experienced the rate of mortality that was higher than the rate of mortality for the white Union soldiers uh the number of deaths that took place during the course of the civil war approximately 700,000 of them half of those deaths took place uh among the soldiers who were fighting for the confederacy and of course they were fighting for the purposes of preserving slavery um one final point that i think is relevant is the um uh there there was a serious attempt Uh, to prevent the Civil War from occurring while simultaneously ending slavery through a program that President Lincoln attempted to introduce long before he became president, Uh, and this is a program of compensated emancipation. The idea that he had was, let's pay the slaveholders for their human property and thereby liberate them without having to have a national conflict. Uh, But this was a proposal that was never seriously considered by the Southern slaveholders. Uh, In fact, they never came to the negotiating table to consider seriously uh, some sort of plan for compensated emancipation. So as a consequence, one could argue that uh, the the white South actually chose to go to war rather than to avoid it uh, through an alternative means of ending slavery. You know,
1: there's a...
2: There's a there's a, a, a quote of Malcolm X that we like to use. Uh, he talks about um, and the metaphor that he sets up is, you know, if, if someone stabs you uh, with a knife, it's nine inches long uh, and they pull it out, you know, three inches. But six inches of the knife are still in the in your body. You know that provides you some relief, but you're still you know you're still you know probably morally wounded. If you pull the knife out another three inches, that also provides a significant um, amount of uh, relief. But again, the knife is still there. If you pull it all the way out. Uh, you know, knife is now no longer plunged in, your, in in the person's body, but they've got this gaping wound. And so um, when you think about all these kind of incremental things that people have done, um, you know, that's not the same thing as retribution. You know, let's say, say I was stealing your cattle for three years and finally, uh, you know, the, the law or someone is able to make me stop. All right. So I'm no longer conti- I'm not continuing to steal from you, but I still have all of those cattle that I took from you. Um that's not reparations. <laughs> you know, that's the law coming in and doing what it should do. Reparations would require me to return all of your cattle and probably also some interest on, you know, the money that you might have made if you had sold those cattle over the years that I had them. So you know, this is what we're talking about. You know, uh, ending the Civil War was the end of you know, ending something that was immoral. Yes, it needed to happen, but that did not provide reparations. Uh, it could have if the federal government had followed through on its promise of 40 acre land grants, but it did not. So, no, retribution uh, reparations are still due. They're over 158 years uh,
1: due at this point. Now, you talk about the National Labor Relations Act in 1935. Tell us how did this impact? Um, black americans in the past and today
0: well the national labor relations act if i recall concerns uh the consolidation of the opportunity for unions to engage in uh in in, in strong negotiations with employers uh but um i'm not sure you know one could argue that that, that was a two-edged sword with respect to the black community uh whether or not it was useful to black Americans was contingent upon whether or not they could be members of particular unions. And so the union organizations that were receptive and inclusive uh, of, of black members were the ones in which the uh, National Labor Relations Act was something that could be beneficial to black workers, Uh, but there were a number of unions that excluded black workers altogether. And so in that context, the law was not necessarily beneficial, but um, the National Labor Relations Act is not something that I think is a a central instrument of either positive or negative impact on on black workers.
1: Education, just tell us How did African-Americans suffer because they did not have adequate education or education at all?
2: You're talking about the period of of enslavement or? Yes. Well, certainly um, so much information about our laws, about what was happening in current events, uh, what kinds of rights they may or may not have had. you know, not being necessarily uh, able to, to to be, not being aware of uh, insurrections that were happening, not just in the United States, but across the Caribbean and and Southern and South and and Central and South America. You know, these were all ways that, you know, white Americans contrived to keep black people in the dark, to keep them ignorant, Um, you know, to make them think that the, the existence that they were enduring was normal, Um, and that this was exactly what was happening to enslaved people all over the world. So, you know, yes, not being able to, uh, you know, not not having that um, literacy was a huge thing, but it was not 100 percent. There were always Black people who were managing somehow to obtain literacy. Um, In some cases, the the white people around them assisted them. Uh, That's a small number of people, but they were um, kind of the eyes and ears for larger numbers of black people who informed them of what was going on um, but certainly when uh, you know the institution of slavery was outlawed and black people were uh, able to um, to set up schools I mean even while uh, the Civil war was happening, you had um you know basically freedom schools being set up in the, the Union camps and, you know, children, men and women of every age, white people were flocking to those camps, not only for the protection of the Union soldiers, but so that they could attend those schools. Um, you know, they understood that something that white people were keeping from you and that could be punishable, you know, by death in some cases uh, was certainly something that caught their attention. And, um, you know, once Black people were able to set up their own schools, um, the literacy rates just grew astronomically. Um, I mean, Sandy may be able to say, you know, something specifically about how, uh, uh, during Reconstruction, um, the extent to which literacy uh, became pretty, you know, pretty widespread.
0: i think that the 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 highest estimates that i've seen of the degree of literacy among black americans at the end of the civil war is about 20% of the population and that was disproportionately uh literacy that was present among the freed black population um but uh you know remarkably By the beginning of the 20th century, the black literacy rate had risen to somewhere in the vicinity of about 60 percent. So this is perhaps the most rapid and dramatic increase in literacy that has occurred in any location in the world historically. Uh, And so... uh, you know, black Black Americans, particularly those whose ancestors were enslaved in the United States, uh, have long had a a strong passion and commitment to educational attainment. Uh, it's it's actually somewhat astonishing to us to hear people say that Black Americans are averse to education, uh, given the the history of. Uh, of of the growth in literacy, uh, the history of the willingness of local communities throughout the South to not only pay taxes to school systems that were segregated and excluded their kids, but also to use what limited resources they had to build their own schools for their kids, uh, particularly under the Rosenwald Project, um, so um, uh, so education has been something that has been central to uh, the Black American experience and uh, and the Black American uh, scheme of aspiration. Uh, but what we what we also must add is that um, education is not is not the panacea. Um, vital as it is, it does not provide us with an avenue to correct things like massive economic disparity. So, for example, if we think about racial wealth differences in the United States, which uh, on average, as of 2019, meant that uh, a white household had $841,000 more than a black household. Uh, If we think about that kind of disparity, that kind of gap is not bridged by education. In fact, white household heads who never finished high school have uh, a significantly higher median level of wealth than black household heads who have college degrees
1: that's telling us a lot of information there now let's look at housing in the case for reparation tell us about that story
2: well um uh, the, sorry cali house oh I th- did you say cali house or did you say housing housing, okay, housing. Oh, okay. okay 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 um so if you think about um situations where black uh american sins of u.s slavery managed to uh obtain housing Um, oftentimes they were in the communities that were the least desirable, the parts of the city um, that whites did not want to settle in. Um, And frequently they were in what became the downtowns of those cities, uh, places that were near uh, the railroad depot, for example. Uh, But as a lot of these cities developed, um, the city centers in those spaces. And so there was a need for city halls and civic centers and uh, performing arts centers uh, and eventually airports. And uh, and so what did they do? They, they often appropriated those neighborhoods that white people didn't want initially, but suddenly now are valuable uh, because these are the perfect places to locate all of this infrastructure that suddenly you know spells out you know that's, uh, that's now significant for a growing a, a growing city uh and so uh, the cities would declare eminent domain on those black communities um and many times uh people did not receive what their properties were worth uh or if there were uh relocation allowances they would be on the meager side um And this happened over and over and over again in in many different cities. Uh, I mean, we hear occasionally of some uh, kind of uh, uh, more celebrated cases. You may be aware of Bruce's Beach case in California. Didra, is is that familiar to you? Didra? Yes. You are familiar with Bruce's Beach? Yes, I am. Okay, but this is this is one of those rare cases where there is a tremendous amount of documentation. This is a situation where a black couple owned two acres of land on uh, Manhattan Beach, which is part of Los Angeles County, uh, which they purchased in the 1920s. And it was a going concern. It did incredibly well. Um, but then the the local whites were not really happy to see black people coming and enjoying themselves on the beach, taking in the sun, taking in the waves, picnicking. Um, And they were not happy until they were able to convince um, the, the politicians that they knew to take over that property through eminent domain and uh you know they received just a small fraction of what the property was worth uh in the 1940s when the, the the state took it over uh fast forward to you know the current times when those 2 acres you know were valued now at 75 million dollars uh this was property that they had paid i think in the 20000s uh, uh for it initially um and you know so now what's going to happen i mean ultimately the city uh, and the state did decide to give the property back to the family uh and the family i think then turned around and sold it to the city for to the state rather for twenty thousand, 20 million dollars but it's the you know it's rare that you have a situation where um you know you have that level of information about what happened and know who the you know who the the uh you have a chain of of, of ownership with the property um but as you know we were talking about uh the highways um so many times black communities were the targets for you know urban quote-unquote urban renewal uh you know also known as negro removal in a lot of a lot of places um but as, as Annie will say too you know housing is the place where a lot of people uh, middle income, lower uh, income folks—that's where their wealth is. But it's not, um, you know, uh, whether you do or don't have a house does not necessarily. How do to put this, Andy? Um, you know, I, you know, people will say, "Oh, you know, well, I,
1: I, I make it possible well,
2: think, to think... have, a, have a house somehow." Go ahead. Somehow, you know, somehow this will will equalize uh, the wealth disparity, and that's just right. not the case.
0: That's not true, yeah. Uh, I think that we have a tendency in the United States, because we have romanticized home ownership so much, to think that if you could equalize home ownership between Blacks and whites, then you could eliminate the racial wealth gap. Uh, but that's that's far from true. Uh, it is actually uh, largely the case that it is households that are at the middle of the income distribution that depend or rely most heavily on home ownership as their source of wealth. Uh, But when you get to the upper uh, 25% of the income distribution, those households have much more diverse portfolios and much larger uh, levels of wealth, and so uh, they not only rely upon home ownership, but they own stocks and bonds, they own non-residential real estate, they own businesses, they have a variety of of pension programs that they are are a part of, um, and so these other types of assets loom much much uh, larger in the portfolios of uh of the upper twenty-five percent of of the economic distribution. And um and I think that uh if we downplay those other types of assets, uh we grossly overestimate the effect of equalizing home ownership between blacks and whites.
2: You know, I think it's important to say that, you know, yes, it's extremely Uh, significant, that, you know, these Black Americans since US slavery be housed. um, And that, you know, Black people will comprise the largest number and percentage of unhoused people in this country. So housing is important. But as Annie is saying, um, it's just one piece of that wealth puzzle um, that needs to be addressed.
1: What is the overall message
0: you want to leave the reader with once they finish this book? Well, I, I, we, we may have slightly different comments here, but uh, the message that I would hope readers of the Black Reparations Project would come away with is the centrality of having a program that meets four pillars. The first is it establishes clearly who should be eligible for reparations under uh, the aegis of a project that is designed for Black Americans. And from our perspective, uh, reparations should go specifically to those Black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved in the United States. Uh, We offer two eligibility criteria. Uh, The first is an identity standard that says that an individual must self-identify or have self-identified as Black, Negro, African-American, or Afro-American for at least 12 years before the adoption of a reparations plan or a study commission for reparations. Uh, And in addition, uh, there is a lineage standard that must be met. So an individual would have to show that they have at least one ancestor who was enslaved in the United States of America. Uh, So that's the first dimension. The second is, We have to establish what the amount should be for a reparations plan and the amount that we have arrived at predicated on an analysis of the magnitude of the racial wealth gap, which we argue that a reparations plan should be designed to eliminate uh, the amount that we've arrived at is is currently in the vicinity of fourteen point three trillion dollars. There are two other components of a a reparations plan, and I'll be glad to to hand off to Kirsten to talk about those last two components, but they involve who should pay, and they involve what form reparations should take. Yeah, thank you. I would add to that, you know, that, you know, for readers, you know, that you
2: have before you a guide that defines reparations uh, and also provides a wealth of information about our nation's history, uh, information that may be new to you, uh, but that outlines both the U.S. government's culpability with respect to the creation and maintenance of the racial wealth gap. Uh, but you also have in the Black Reparations Rebor vid- Project information about, um, you know, how to how to act, how to move forward. Um, you know, we always want to uh, encourage readers to to act. You know, to to lobby and to petition Congress for true reparations for Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. You know, one of the things that we hear from audiences is that they are grateful to have this vocabulary. You know, they now feel able to talk about intergenerational wealth transfers. They now are able to talk about the forty-acre land grants that were promised <laughs> to um, the newly emancipated, uh, you know, Black people. In conjunction with the 160 acre uh, land grants, the the Homestead Act of 1862. I mean, people say they knew about those two things, but never thought about them together. Um, But, um, you know, but also knowing about things like um, intergenerational wealth, how that happens, who has it, who doesn't, and why. Or as you were talking about, this whole question of literacy, or thinking about all of the ways that the federal government has advantaged white Americans while simultaneously disadvantaging black Americans. Um, there's information about all of this in the Black Reparations, um Project. Uh, and, you know, we invite, you know, readers to, to, to dive in you know uh read the essays take a look at the notes um and begin to um you know kind of appropriate this language and to talk about these issues among your family members and your friends and uh, across your community so
0: that, that was that was a that was a an, a very very important intervention from Kirsten uh but i i want to tack on the last two dimensions of a reparations plan that we outline in our portions of the Black Reparations Program uh, Project. And, and those two dimensions involve uh, who should pay and what form the payment should take. And so who should pay? from our perspective, it's the federal government. Uh, It's the federal government that has the capacity to meet this enormous bill, and it's also the federal government that is ultimately the central culpable party responsible for the existing racial wealth gap as a consequence of a variety of policies that Kirsten has talked about. Uh, The federal government is the capable party because the combined budgets of all state and local governments in the United States come to less than $5 trillion, and the bill to close the racial wealth gap is at least $14.3 trillion. Uh, Finally, what form should the payments take? Well, we're convinced, as, as has been done in many other cases, particularly cases where victimized communities have received restitution, direct payments should be made to eligible recipients so that each of the individual recipients of reparations will have the ability to exercise full discretion over how the funds might be used.
1: Thank you so much for being on the podcast. And again, people can pick up this book at any location. Thank you.